Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media, this is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is a reaction to the interlude episode in episode nine. Welcome to Invisible Tears. Amanda here, co-host of Invisible Tears. And today I am here with our host, Jane, and our co-host, Drew. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. I'm doing good. great. Good. Yeah. Fantastic. So today is a reaction episode, and we are actually reacting to the Dark Valley interlude episode and Dark Valley episode nine. I know it's slightly out of order, but you guys have to understand we actually listen to them a little bit ahead of time, a little bit before you guys, just so we have time to do the edits and actually get them up in time on our feeds. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah. Um, so I listened to both of them and um, do you guys want to start or I would like to jump right into the interlude episode. Perfect. If you guys are okay with that. Of course. Go for it. First of all, I'd like to say that that episode was a little bit difficult for me to hear because it was talking about the autopsies. It was difficult for me to hear those details about these women that we have been talking about a lot and about who they are. And it's almost like I've gained a, a more personal connection with them since we have been finding out so much information about them. So then listening to the autopsies and what connects them all, what connects all our cases together, uh, that was a little difficult for me at first. I had to kind of like switch my mind over from, okay, 
knowing these women, like I felt I knew them personally to their victims of a homicide. And uh, that was a little difficult. But it also, on the same end, answered that one most important question that everybody keeps asking us. How are these cases connected? Yep. And, you know, we speculated over the past couple of years on how they were connected or how the authorities were connecting them all to the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. But with <laughs> hearing about these autopsies, it definitely tells us how they're, they're all connected. The stab wounds to the necks and the cutting of the abdomen. So as I'm listening to these, all these same scenarios with all these autopsies, I was kind of like really thinking in my mind, this brings a lot to my attention. And it, it, it makes me really think about a couple of things, two things actually, has really just set in my mind the past day. One thing that I really thought a lot about that really like hit me in the face was, okay, so this is all the same guy we're assuming, especially with the autopsy reports. And I was also thinking, oh my God. All right, so you have Bernice Cordemash, Eva, and Linda Moore, and Elizabeth Critchley all during the day. All right, now... Elizabeth, Eva, and Bernice, we believe, were hitchhiking. And that was during the week. Those were during the week. So if you take those four, all right, now picture like Eva, Bernice, and Elizabeth being picked up while hitchhiking. Who would they most trust? A person of authority? Someone maybe in uniform just getting on or off work? So I, I kind of had that in my mind. So then you look at Linda Moore and her seeing somebody in her house. Now, if she saw a person of authority, uh, like, walking up to her house, she really wouldn't think much of it. She would almost most likely allow them into her house if they had a question or whatever. Now, this person of authority that I'm thinking of would be a game warden. Now, I'm thinking about the game warden piece because of a couple of things. One, most, if not all, game wardens hunt for wild game. And the stab wounds to the neck, that is something that you would do for a final kill on a deer or something like that that hasn't died yet. And the stomach one, evisceration. Now, all hunters do that. I think it's a law. They have to cut the guts out of the deer. If they get a deer, they have to cut the guts out of the deer while they're in the woods. For the main reason, you don't want your meat to, to rot. That would make your meat rot faster. Um, you want good, healthy meat. So a hunter does that all the time. I, I've never heard of a hunter not doing that. It's actually called field dressing. So every single hunter does it. Yeah, it's just removing all the organs. Exactly. Now, another thing I was also starting to piece together with that is, okay, let's do the three, Eva, Elizabeth, and Bernice. 
How did he get them off the side roads without them freaking out or, or trying to escape out of the vehicle or anything? Pretty easily if they had already trusted him, if he was uh, uh, in uniform during the week and he had already gained their trust. He may have, you know, talked that he was, you know, a game warden or something like that. He may have given an excuse to wanting to go off on a different road that made sense to them. He may have also, because I think most of them also carry a, a gun, he may have also threatened them with the gun as he got off the back road. And I'm kind of wondering if he walked them to their kill site, because they also have handcuffs. Did he maybe have them restrained with handcuffs while he was walking them out through the woods to their kill site. So these scenarios are things that I've been thinking about where it could very possibly be a person of authority, like a game warden. Now you ask, okay, well, what about the others? Well, the others would have been on the weekends, would have been, you know, Barbara Agnew, me, Ellen Freed. So with us three, he could have not been working that night, could have been in his regular vehicle, which he was in his regular vehicle with me. There was, it was not a, an official vehicle that he was driving the night he attacked me. Those ones were at night on the weekend. He would have had his regular vehicle. And yeah, there would have been more fighting. Like I fought, Barbara Agnew fought. And I'm going to assume that Ellen fought. Now, if you take us three, we fought because he wasn't in uniform. He didn't have an official vehicle, and we felt threatened. So we did fight. These are just things that I'm thinking about. Now, Linda Moore, that was very interesting that they found branches and leaves or whatever in the house. So that kind of confirms what Andrew thought. He was in the backyard. He was in the backwoods. Yep. I thought that was very interesting because I think that's the first time we heard that. Yep, first time. That was some really good info to hear that he wasn't just walking down the road. He wasn't walking by and he didn't drive there. He was come from the backwoods. Now, for those that have investigated Steve, how many times Linda's husband why the heck would he come from the backwoods when he lived there? He would have drove in the driveway, walked in the house, and whatever. So, I mean, that just gives me another reason where they have no reason in this world to keep investigating Steve. Eliminate him. He's done. He's innocent. He did not kill his wife. That's my opinion. But those are the few things that I took from that episode. And Eva... She was almost decapitated. I almost want to think that that was not her first interaction with this guy. The way that he stabbed her in the neck was so personal. So, so personal. And if she hitchhiked a lot, I would think maybe it wasn't her first interaction with him. Especially if he frequent that road while he was on the job, 
going or coming from the job. I would like to really look into where their game warden office was back in the 80s. I would really be interested in, in checking that out to see where their location is. You know, is it a location where they traveled Route 12 a lot? Right. It's a thought. That was pretty much what I took away from it. I don't know if you guys have any reactions to any of that. Where you're going with it, I understand because of the components and because of the pieces that were outlined, right, in that interlude episode, a lot of really great, more specific information. I think the big pieces that I personally took out of that episode was, number one, actually connecting everyone more specifically because we have more detail about the stab wounds and then essentially when remains weren't skeletal, the disembowelment, right? And because of that treatment, I firmly believe that this is an avid hunter because the treatment is field dressing again. You know, you guys know what I mean? Um, Those were the two big components and pieces that I was thinking in my mind. So as I think about how we've been sort of throwing out theories, you know, maybe he wasn't actually driving around looking for people and maybe he was sitting and hunting and had specific places. I think that's where my gut's taking me a little bit more is I think he was a hunter, but I think he actually was a stationary hunter. I believe that he was a stationary hunter when it came to Kathy Milligan, me, Barbara Agnew, and Ellen Freed. But when it comes to Bernice, Eva, and Elizabeth Critchley, I think they were victim of opportunity. And that would explain why, I mean, getting back to if it was a game warden, that would explain why during the day, if he picked them up and brought them to their kill location, he wouldn't have to worry about any evidence being left in his vehicle, in his you know, work truck. He wouldn't have to worry about that because he would have already either restrained them, been able to restrain them, or gain their trust to get them out of the vehicle. Where the night ones, like me and Barbara Agnew and, and so on, he had to be physical with us. He had to physically try to remove us from our vehicles. It was very interesting to me how she, see, Kathy Milliken was always a, a question mark and how they connected Kathy Milliken with Barbara Agnew was very interesting with that abdomen cut because both their bodies had evidence of that. I mean, all the bodies, I think, had evidence in one way or another, especially with the necks. But those two, how they were so far apart in years and in in mileage that um, I, I... truly believe Kathy Milligan was number one. She was the first. So I do just have a couple of comments about it being a game warden, though. When we look at uh, Eva and also Elizabeth Critchley, he couldn't have picked them up when they started hitchhiking, if that was the case, because he would have been out of his jurisdiction. Oh, no. Game wardens have a large... They don't go by towns. Right. They go by counties. Wasn't Eva picked up in Bellas Falls? She was hitchhiking from Bellas Falls to Claremont? North Walpole. And then Elizabeth Critchley was from Massachusetts into New Hampshire. I think that Elizabeth Critchley may have gotten a couple of rides up here 
Because even like they said, that's a two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. And to find somebody to pick you up in Massachusetts and bring you up to the Claremont area, that is like few and far between. So I really believe she was um, picked up a few times to actually be brought up to the area. But I think like the game warden in Keene covers Winchester, Hinsdale, Swansea, Keene, Chesterfield. Game wardens cover a large area. Right. So that game warden would have covered North Walpole, Claremont, Springfield, Unity, Newport. So that one game warden would have covered a large area. Right. But it really does say, okay, but Elizabeth Critchley, he wouldn't have been able to pick her up in his car unless she was in New Hampshire getting hitchhiked. Right. That's why I say I, I believe that she may have been picked up right. a couple of times. Yeah, which we talked about that in um, one of the previous episodes, ta- saying that somebody getting a ride from Framingham, Mass, all the way to Waterbury, Vermont, the odds of finding a driver that was making that route, yep. kind of unlikely. Yeah. So theory that there's a couple of rides throughout that trip does make sense. Yeah. Yep. And the game warrant does make sense as far as, you know, being around the bird sanctuary with Kathy Milliken, being on the uh, Saxons River with Linda Moore's home, being on the Sugar River yeah. where all the bodies were found. As far as an authority figure goes, it's the one that would stand out least walking around the woods next to rivers and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And those motherfuckers come out of nowhere too. You'll be sitting there fishing <laughs> and all of a sudden- Oh yeah. Boat pops out of nowhere. <laughs> from or out of the woods and you're like they're licensed and you're like what the i don't even know where the hell you came from you just snuck up on me so they also do have that sort of technique of knowing how to sneak up on people in the woods to catch you off guard so yeah they stalk yeah they're ninjas in green yeah they do they come out of nowhere it's a just a thought i wonder if they've ever investigated that you know possibility back then i think it's a great theory to explore i do too I absolutely do, too. So, yeah, that's, um. again, it was a very difficult episode for me to listen to, but um, very informative. It answered a lot of viewers' questions on how these cases are all connected. And the tarp. Yeah. I sat there just a stewing. Why did they not take that tarp for evidence? Why did they not? I was so pissed off when I heard that. As was I, Jane, but I have to be (sighs) honest, I wasn't surprised, which is almost even worse. You know, like if you find a body wrapped in a tarp, I would say it's evidence. But that's just me. I'm not a police officer. You know, I I realized back in the 80s, they did not have much to work with as far as solving murders and collecting evidence and and stuff like that because there wasn't DNA and there wasn't the forensics testing that they can do today back then. But they took the time to form a task force because they knew that they had a serious problem. They knew that there was a serial killer. Now, if you form a task force and you take the time to do this, you would think that they would be more vigilant with collecting evidence at all these sites. Leave no stone to unturned, looking under every single leaf and branch and tree stem, and there's a tarp sitting right there. Unfortunately, Critchley was discovered, I think, five years before the task force was formed, correct? Oh, yeah. 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 That's true. 
but still. I'm not a detective, and I don't have all those skills. Do we know how many cops were added to this task force? Or is it just one of those, as we're seeing with the state of New Hampshire, hey, we're going to create a task force to get to the bottom of this. We're not going to assign anybody to that task force, but we're going to create a task force to show like we're actually doing something. Oh, no, there was um, Michael LeClaire from Vermont, Mike LeClaire from New Hampshire. Vermont and New Hampshire got together. There was John Philpin. I think there was like five or six of them that were on this task force. That was their job for, I think, a year or two, was they formed this task force, and they were looking at all these cases. It wasn't something that they just wanted to tell the news, oh, don't worry about it, we, we formed this task force. It was a pretty serious task force. I mean, John Philpin was part of it, so you know that kind of tells me something, too, because he was like very involved with this task force. Today I would question any task force being formed. <laughs> oh, did I say that out loud? Yeah, that was the reason why I was asking is because State of New Hampshire has organizations for victim advocates. Yeah, Jane doesn't even have a victim advocate. So thinking that they're going to say one thing but then do another, not surprising to us. No, they definitely did. They definitely did form one. Drew, did you have any sort of feedback or anything like that about the interlude episode? Because there was tons of fact in there. There's a lot of facts, but uh, I think we actually kind of covered a lot of the stuff that the uh, Crawl Space team talked about in some of the previous episodes. Uh, I know when they were talking about like the hunting aspect, I think we had actually covered that in a reaction episode. You know, another thing that they brought up was being so close to the Connecticut River. Why did he not dispose the bodies in the Connecticut River. Did he want these bodies to be found? And they were all in shallow graves, so they were pretty much covered with what, like brush and stuff like that. But do you think he wanted these bodies to be found? I'm not sure if it was he wanted these bodies to be found or if it was for himself. So he can revisit. Yep. And that was another thing I was kind of wondering. I wonder if when... They say Ellen Freed was, they never found her clothes, yeah. right? Yeah. So they're assuming that there was the possibility of sexual. That's a big leap right there. Yeah. But I'm wondering is, okay, why didn't they find her clothes? Because even if it wasn't a sexual assault, her clothes would still be there somewhere. He would have taken her clothes off and they would be there somewhere. So I'm kind of thinking that he brought her there. He killed her. He left. And I'm wondering if he revisited and took her clothes. Mm -hmm. Felt for whatever reason he wanted to take her clothes. Yeah. I mean, it's really unknown as to whether or not, you know, he sort of took anything off of victims. But it could have been any sort of variety of things, too. I just find it odd that, you know, her clothes weren't there at all. So... He had to have taken her clothes or something took her clothes. Right. I'm sure if somebody found clothes there, it would have been by her remains and they would have seen her remains. Or it goes back to, did the river take her clothes after she was decomposed? When she was, her body was down to skeletal remains. Would it be possible that the river overflowed and, and took her clothes? 
Yeah, with all the flooding that Drew outlined and found around that area, could have been a combination of possible river flooding and environmental sort of damage, but also animal activity as well. It's kind of we don't know odd that her clothes were not there at all. Or there may have been some of her clothes, but they're not sharing that. We might not know all of that. I mean, what was the other thing that she brought up? She clarified bodies being 500 feet rather than 500 yards apart. Yeah, that. There was something in the news that the news have always had in there, but she verified that that wasn't so. Kathy Milligan wasn't actually taking pictures. She only had binoculars. That is it. Yeah, that's actually a big piece, too. That is a big piece. And that it was later in the evening, too. It was yep. 5, 6 o'clock. Yeah. So, I mean, if you read it anywhere online, she's got, she's taking pictures. Right. And then they found no camera but binoculars, so they, she was pretty much bird watching instead of taking photos. That was a pretty big piece of um, clarification of evidence. And it would be interesting to know whether she did normally bring a camera with her. So did she possibly have a camera with her and then he took it? Yeah. Did she somehow accidentally capture a picture of him while he was stalking her or whatnot? Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, because it very well could have just been an assumption because that was something that she typically did. So it very well could have just been an assumption to everyone. But it is important to note that the camera was never found. So yeah. unless the camera was in the car and they don't want to reveal that, that's why they're saying she was there with binoculars watching birds and not taking pictures because the camera w might have been in her car. I mean, I would see why they would not want to reveal that. Anything else on that, you guys? I don't think so. It was definitely a fact-filled, good clarification episode and a good roundtable between all of them. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Again, Jen is not disappointing at all with her work. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our episode. So we also are supposed to do a reaction episode to episode nine, where she talks about a very well-known person of interest. Is that what we want to call him? Yeah. Michael Nicolau. Yep. Um, we've already done an episode on Michael Nicolau, and I think Jen covered why he's really not a suspect in the Connecticut River Valley cases. I think she covers that very well. And I really don't have much to add to that. I'm really glad that John Philpin expressed how much he just wants to move on from Michael Nicolau and that he's not the Connecticut River Valley killer. And he has reason to to absolutely say that, but he couldn't share it. So there must be some kind of um, something eliminated him from 
being a suspect or a person of interest in these cases. So some piece of actual fact and information. You could tell by the very stern way that he was quoted when he was talking. He was like, I'm clearing this up once and for all. Yeah, you could tell he's done with the conversation of Michael Nicolau and just wants to put it in a suitcase, pack it away and and ship it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if anybody's interested, it's our season one, episode 10 uh, episode titled It Wasn't Michael Nicolau. Uh, this we definitely dive into deeper, talking about Michael Nicolau, talking about uh, Delbert Tallman, talking about Gary Westover, the resident from Kellyville. While we cover all of these different people of interest or, you know, names that you'll find on message boards and kind of, actually, I believe we eliminate all of them out of the equation. So definitely, if you want to hear a little bit more of our in-depth analysis of each person of interest, definitely check out that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also talked about it with uh, John Philpin, too. Yep. I think he had talked about a, a few of them. Yeah. Go back and listen to our those episodes. And I think throughout the episode, it was really great um, that Jen was able to speak with Ben Montgomery, too. Yes. That journalist. I think that he really helped fill in some blanks as far as timeline and how everything sort of developed with, you know, the. Nicolau sort of framing. There were really great pieces of information that he could fill in. Um, so it was more clear. I'm glad that she was able to get him on record and actually interview him. Yeah, because he really was, um, even though he was in close contact with Lynn, he really did look at everything with an open mind. Right. And I, I wish I knew that then when I talked to him, like I know that now. But yeah, I did appreciate how he did, you know, he was doing his job the right way. He was looking at everything with an open mind. And he was looking for that solid evidence, that solid fact. Yeah. He was looking for that proof. Yeah, I did really, really appreciate his interview with Jen very much. So did I. I think it just goes to show an outline that it it could be easy for an individual if they're looking into cases, especially if for some reason they started feeling personally affected or, or feeling in some way like I'm, I'm meant to do this. It's important to make sure that you're always approaching it without blinders on and without any sort of bias. Don't arrive at a conclusion before you have all the facts. Don't like make the pieces fit into that narrative that you already have in your head. That's not the way you're going to find any answers. No. I mean, you want to look at both what fits and what doesn't fit. Yeah. And just because uh, something fits and something comes along and doesn't fit, it still doesn't mean they're innocent. It just means, okay, I looked at this information and this information doesn't fit. So let's go further down and look at more information. But um, as soon as something was came about where something didn't fit, it was never looked at. It was ignored and shoved to a side. And, oh, I'm not going to look at that. That doesn't mean anything. That's not the way you do investigative work, especially with unsolved crimes like this. But with her... In her defense, too, I have to say, 
with everything that she brought to Concord, everything she brought to the cold case unit, everything she brought to these detectives in the state police, with them not reacting or not responding to anything that she brought up there was just so damn wrong. I mean, all they had to do was respond and say, oh, we are definitely looking into this. We looked into, you know, this, and we looked into that, and we interviewed this person, and we interviewed that person, and no, he's really not a person of interest or or a person of um, a suspect. But the not getting anything from them up there I think just didn't help the situation with the whole Michael Nicolau thing. I think that's what made the Nicolau situation explode on on social media. So, you know, in her defense, I have to say it was their fault, too, in New Hampshire and Vermont for not responding to this. They still have never responded to the Michael Nicolau allegations which I think is stupid and asinine. And all they had to do was do one little thing in the paper to say, you know, we've looked into Michael Nicolau, not a suspect, no longer a person of interest. And all that would have gone away. Yeah. But I think they contributed to the way that it exploded on social media. Yeah, the lack of acknowledgement and lack of communication didn't help. It was almost like a force my hand to make someone listen. Well, not only that, but it, it's been what, 15, almost 20 years now. They still haven't responded. So people still have that in their mind that he, he was a, he's still a person of interest. He's still a suspect because they still won't respond even after all these years. And after it being on social media everywhere, they still don't respond. So social media is still feeding on this. And and it's just, uh, it's frustrating. I think in the episode two, I actually wrote down a note. I think it was interesting for Jen to actually make the connection between the wrong composite sketch and how closely that wrong composite sketch actually looked like Nicolau when he wore glasses. So if everybody's remembering, in the Linda Moore case, there was a composite sketch that was put out there because cops and detectives wanted to speak with somebody that they thought was probably a witness. That person was identified, talked to, and eliminated as a suspect. But it still floats around on the internet as, this is another composite sketch of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. And it's not. So that piece of that composite sketch and how similar that actually could look to Nicolau when he's wearing glasses, that piece is interesting. And I liked how Jen actually outlined that. Yeah, I did too. And Lynn with the butterfly figurines. That (laughs) threw me back when I heard that because I was like, Jesus Christ, the full circle really is going to be the butterflies. (laughs) Yeah. For the record, That is a coincidence that Jessica and I, we are very, um, how do I want to say it? Our thing is the butterflies. And yes, Lynn's thing is the butterflies, but it's not like she got us into the butterflies 
or we got her into the butterflies. Full-on coincidence that we all feel a connection to butterflies. It was interesting to hear a little bit of the Dr. Phil show. So I remember when this came out. This was one of those, like, I remember when you first told me about Jane, I was excited for you. I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. But then I remember seeing you like a couple weeks after the filming and you're like, I absolutely hated that. And then when I actually was able to see the televised version of it, I remember thinking to myself, you look so awkward. It looks so forced. And I could tell this wasn't doing you any good. You could read that all over your face, the body language. Um, It always struck me as that was the one time you've done a program where you look like you did not want to be there and you did not want to talk about it. I did not. If I could turn back time, (laughs) you know, I'm sure everybody wishes that at one point or another in their lives. I wish I never did that show. It was not what I thought it was going to be. It was not what it was supposed to be. I wish I never did it. For the record, Dr. Phil does not help anybody. (laughs) He does not help anybody. I did not meet Dr. Phil until I was on stage. And that was the only time I saw him, except we went behind in the back and he took a picture with me, me and Jess. But other than that, I never saw him. I never met with him. He never met with Nick before Nick went on stage. It was all his people, like, you know, his producers and whatever you want to call them, his assistants or whatever. Nobody actually ever talked to anybody about, like, anything. (laughs) It was like, we recorded this, we recorded that, that went up on the screen. They had us meet and, and... did that stupid sit-down thing, and it was horrible, and I wish I never did it. But I did. I just wish it could have helped Nick out a little bit more than it didn't. Because <laughs> I certainly wasn't there for me. I was there for him. Oh, yeah, and I think we were probably there for Lynn, because Lynn de- definitely got a shout-out, and uh, it was what it was. That show will haunt me forever. <laughs> haunt me forever hopefully we'll replace them with better experiences on shows going forward you know make that a little bit more present in your mind yeah you know compare that to all the interviews that i've done on different podcasts over the past year they wanted to talk about my mental health they wanted to talk about you know what i had been through after my attack and concerned about you know, what it had done to my life and my healing and all that. You know, it's like these shows and these um, podcasts, they actually cared about me where, you know, everything I had done with Lynn had never, um, never done that for me. They were never done to benefit me and my mental health ever yeah because by the time you did dark minds she was out of the picture already correct oh yeah yeah she definitely was but even even when i did dark minds with Phelpsy, there was a lot of conversation before i decided to do that with him he had to gain a lot of trust with me and he did he did gain a lot of trust with me he was very different than lynn 
well, his backstory, you could understand why he would be treating you with respect and understand the delicateness of what you went through. Oh, absolutely. The compassion, because his his sister-in-law was pregnant and murdered down in Connecticut. Because of that, he has showed me a lot of compassion and caring and didn't push me into anything. And yeah, it was it was very different. Yeah. And you could see that come across, too, when watching you on that show. You saw that there was that compassion that you were in good hands, um, especially compared to Dr. Phil just a couple of years earlier. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. For those of our listeners that are actually wondering, so Jane calls him Phelpsy, but we're talking about M. William Phelps, Dark Minds. Yeah, I was his very first episode on his very first season of Dark Minds. That was a great show. It's too bad it didn't continue. What a great guy. So anything else, guys? Another great cliffhanger that she left it on. You guys know who she's going to bring up. in the next episode so we know who's going to be in episode 10 talking about the brothers essentially yeah this one we'll definitely have more to say about because we we did not touch on these guys during our suspect episode but throughout our research you would come across their names when looking into other new england related crimes yes yeah she's really now diving into who done it persons of interest this is going to be real interesting and uh Dark Valley, she does not disappoint. So Jane, this question came up to me when I was listening to episode eight, your attack episode on Dark Valley this past Friday. Question for you is, we know that your addiction is gambling um, that you suffered from. When did the gambling start? Before I was attacked, I would go to bingo like once a week with Dennis's mom. So I really didn't consider that an addiction yet. I wasn't addicted to it yet. It wasn't until, I'm going to say probably a couple of years after my attack is when I started really getting into the scratch tickets. And that was progressing uh, quite a bit. I was I was definitely addicted to the scratch tickets. The bingo was getting more frequent, um, you know, going from once a week to three, four, sometimes five times a week. That progressed over the the course of like five years. Um, And then when the casinos opened down in Connecticut, Foxwoods and Mohegan Suns, that was uh, probably pretty close to 10 years after my attack. That's when my addiction exploded. I really became a serious uh, compulsive gambler, making a lot of bad choices in my life, hiding it. A lot of secrets, a lot of, uh, you know, secret trips down to the casino. So it was probably, I I can't really pinpoint on, okay, when did I really become a a serious compulsive gambler? Or when did my addiction start? It wasn't like, it it just like, boom, I had an addiction. It, It was a gradual thing over the years. Especially when I found the slot machines. The slot machines was... That was such a mind-stimulated addiction with the slot machines. That all the way around, like the atmosphere around the casino, the people, the machines, the lights, you know, the sounds, again, sounds. That was just like, it really helped me to try to escape the pain. 
it's funny that it's the slot machines is where it exploded because thinking back to the night of your attack, what was the last fun thing that you were doing with Dennis's mom? Oh, yeah. We were putting quarters in that machine and exactly. they pushed them off the side. Yeah. It's the closest thing to a slot machine type game at those fairs. It was the last time you were happy in a normal life was doing something that that game is the closest thing to a gambling type of activity at those county fairs. So that it's that so sort true. of what set it off with like, you know what? This was the last fun, safe thing that I was doing in my life prior to the attack. And that was your way to escape back to that feeling of I'm safe. This is a level of excitement that I can get without putting myself into harm's way. Because I guarantee every time you had that winning ticket or you won at bingo, you were on cloud nine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was just, it was interesting going, yeah, you weren't really a hardcore gambler until after the fact. And it was the slot machines in particular that really kicked it into high gear. Because um, I knew about the bingo. I remember as a kid when you would come home with these, you know, phenomenal bingo winnings. It would be like, oh, my God, you won. And then we'd sit there and be like, is she lucky and winning on her only time she going? Or how many times <laughs> does she have to go to actually win that money? So that was the only time I remember, like, when looking back at childhood, that was the only time of seeing, like, a crack or as far as, like, seeing a little bit of addiction. The only time you mentioned it was actually talking about bingo. Yeah, that's a good point. Is. Because you never had trouble with drugs. You never had trouble with alcohol. No. Even with there always being drinking around, you were never, never a drunk. You were never drunk, really. You never went down that road of stuff. So I was just like, what was it about gambling that gave you that escape? And it sort of makes sense. It is a, in a way, you're thinking you're not doing harm to anybody. You're not doing harm to myself. All it is is just money out of a pocketbook. What harm can it do? And then you get that that endorphin release when you actually do win. And then when I was re-listening to the attack episode, it just sort of s stuck with me going, yeah, the last fun thing you were doing was basically a county fair slot machine. That is so true. And there's lights and there's sound and there's people and there's all that almost identical atmosphere. I was going to say, not yep. much different than a Florida of a casino, just different people and different stuff around you. But the whole craziness of just everything going on, the lights, the sounds, you don't think anything of it because you're you're gambling. Yeah. Did your therapist ever talk to you about that? Well, not that specific, but obviously my counseling began with the gambling addiction and then reverted over to my attack. Yeah, I was really finding the root cause. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I wonder if that's sort of the root cause. I wonder if you were doing something else before the attack that is a very good observation drew so has nobody ever brought that up to you before no really no never oh, so that's this week's uh reaction episode as we cover um the interlude interview between tim lance and jennifer um and then also the suspect or the first suspect episode where jennifer talks about michael nicolau and also lynn cardi Next week's episode, we'll be digging a little bit deeper into the next, next persons of interest that Jennifer is bringing up. We're excited to listen to that. I have a feeling we both all know where, you know, which road that's going down. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear other people's take on what she's been able to find.
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.